But if there's value and it doesn't require a lot of learning, people do it really quick because they ultimately really want to do their jobs well. They really want to reduce risk and feel like, okay, I've got more of a command of this job than I might have if I weren't using this tool. And so all we're, all we're suggesting is ask the question. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Gray Tech Group. You're invited to join our conversation to model the future of construction innovation and the digital transformation adventure of this great industry. My guest today is Hugh Seaton. He's the CEO of The Link, a platform that is changing how specifications are consumed, managed, and ultimately created by construction field teams and design build contractors. He's a practical strategist, but always grounded in how the analysis guides getting real things done in the world. Welcome back to the show, Hugh. Wow, I sound awesome. Thanks for having me, Todd. <laughs> I ripped it from your your LinkedIn, so it's uh, yeah. so I liked it. It was good stuff. Awesome. <laughs> well, great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. For those who missed you coming on the the last show, which shame on shame on you guys if you haven't listened to Hugh before. But uh, how'd you get started into the construction industry? So uh, it, it started in, believe it or not, China, where a friend of mine, Paul Doherty, was doing a bunch of BIM work for some construction projects in Shanghai. He and I got going. This is 2010. Uh, he and I got going on a number of different things, and that carried over when I came back to the U.S. in 2012. Built some software uh, primarily for field teams and did some VR while we were at it. Sold that to a company and have been working at CSI since and then launched the link uh, a little over two years ago. Nice. Very nice. Well, let's dive into the all things AI. How is it really changing the landscape of construction? So I, if you don't mind, I'm going to talk about what AI even is, because I think that, that like a lot of big categories, we lump things together that aren't quite the same. Um, you know, I like to talk about three big waves of AI, ignoring the one in the 60s, because they didn't build anything that useful. They just did a lot of pretty good science. But there was the first wave in the in the 80s, and that was expert systems. So this was like software that could do things with documents and some other things, but you can only write so many rules to help make decisions. Sometimes it has to be a little more subtle than that. Wave two was deep learning, and that came out of the University of Toronto, where in about 2011 is where the first time people heard really heard about it. And the difference there was now they were training models on tons and tons of data. So the first time it was how many rules and can we make it so that, you know, in a sequence of things, the AI can do what we want it to do. Then we said, well, okay, but you can't really, you can't write enough rules to recognize the difference between Todd's face and my face, right? We're just, there's cl close enough that it would have to be a lot of rules and, and so on. What they realize is if you run a bunch of data through a deep learning algorithm and, and create a model, um, mm. you can do much more subtle things. And that's most people that think of AI think of deep learning. Most products in the world right now, almost everything is deep learning. The thing is, just like when you, you know, increase the temperature of water from 31 degrees to 32 degrees, it changes. Sometimes more is different. And in the case of the third way, which we just started pretty recently, is when you have a lot of deep learning, <laughs> And there's another thing in there called the transformer that changed some of the algorithm. But the, the, the third wave are large language models, and that's what you're hearing a lot about today. Right now, there aren't a ton of production products out there. Obviously, ChatGPT on the consumer side and some other things. You're going to see a ton more of it. 
Because unlike the first time when deep learning came out, there, were, there weren't really a lot of AI engineers. Now there's like a million, I mean, literally a million. So this new innovation is coming into a field where people know about it. They know how to productize it. They understand data a lot better. They know all the kind of under the hood math and technology that makes AI work. So I think the curves and the speed this time are going to be way different from the first one where, you know, between 2011 and 2016, when you started to see real products like the open spaces of the world, it was, you know, five, four or five years. You're going to see things in months. You already are, but I think you're really going to start to see a wave as, as companies like mine work out the kinks, make it so it's reliable and, and something that a field team can actually work with instead of just play with. Yeah. What, what do you think is going to make the biggest impact when it comes to the actual construction and AI? Let's talk about short-term and a little bit less short-term. Short-term, it, it will change our relationship with documents, full stop. Crazy things like all the dark data you hear everybody grumble about. Well, one of the things that you can train in a large language model to do is go through all those PDFs and see what's in there. Um, mm -hmm. It's something we're having some fun with. And I say fun like wincingly. Um, <laughs> that's the short run is I think our relationship to documents and that sort of information is, is just going to change. It's going to, you're going to be able to automate things. A lot of times you're going to augment things. So, you know, just like right now, a PM might turn to a PE. Um, and say, go get this done for me, but still want to see the output. You're going to start to see AI be like that. It's not going to be as smart as a PE and certainly not have the common sense of a 25-year-old. But it'll be able to do a lot of the things you might have asked someone to do, which is great because we don't have enough people in this industry. And uh, making some of the drudgery automated or augmented is a really good thing. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think you're going to see the things that people like least about construction becoming more automated or augmented. And so a lot of the grunt stuff gets done by an AI and still gets reviewed by a human uh, and then passed up the chain. The second thing that's a little longer term is when they made these LLMs, these large language models, they wanted them to be super good at, at language, and they are. What they didn't realize is they'd learned other things on the way. There's this, this things called emergent properties. And some of them are like, they can write code. Now the code isn't wonderful, but it's good enough to write an API call. You're able to get these models and the, the, the kind of products that are a part of to do things. So I think for the first time, really, you're going to see AI as an agent, as something that can act in the world. And then you have the question of how do you decide what you can trust it with, how many, how many steps do you trust it with, and so on. And I think that's going to, there's going to be a lot of complexity in there. Um, but ultimately, it isn't just, you know, looking at something or summarizing something, it'll act, you'll actually be able to tell it to go do things, whether it's go write me an email or go, you know, check in Procore for this work order or, you know, something like that. So I think you're going to find that their ability to act is, is truly new and unique and really exciting. Mm -hmm. So I, I hear the, uh, the red flag going up on some people of, Oh, well, this is, is this going to be scary? You know, of if, the AI and the, the computers are, are starting to take over different aspects of my job. Should I be worried? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that construction is close enough to manufacturing in certain parts of the country in terms of who does what and, and the, some of the sensibility that 
there's a spillover concern because the, the you know, 2000s were really tough for manufacturing. It goes further back than that. But after China becoming part of the WTO, it, it got really pretty rough. The difference is there were a lot of people. There were a lot of people everywhere. There was the demographics of that. Those two decades were incredible. We're never going to have enough people. America isn't having kids at a replacement rate. If you look at the population pyramid, they call it. Um, you can see that the tw- 25 to 30 year olds are the biggest bucket of Americans that we're going to ever, we're ever going to have again, or certainly within the time frame we know about. So I think you're going to find whoever is the listener is that that there's a lot less competition for your job than than maybe was true five six years ago. That's kind of point one. Point two is the scary part. I really like that you use that word. If Anyone's seen the Sorcerer's Apprentice with Mickey Mouse, where he teaches the, um, the, the, the mop to mop and then it pours water. And before you know it, everything's underwater. That sort of thing is, is a valid analogy. And the issue is that we can't trust AI for the moment. And it'll be a while before we trust it very far because we don't know how it fails. The biggest problem we have with AI is it's, it's not, of course, it's not perfect, but we don't know how it's not perfect. It'll make mistakes the way a human wouldn't and won't make mistakes that a human would. So the point, that's why you keep hearing this word augmentation so much. It can't replace a human. It, there's no little voice in, inside the AI's head, for lack of a better word, saying, is that right? Like you think about what humans do. Somewhere back there, there's part of your brain saying, is this the right thing to do? Am I, am I, could I, you know, it, like you question yourself. AI isn't built to question itself. So it's going to confidently tell you things that are wrong. What that means is it's great as a research assistant. It's great to go, as I say, you know, go into Autodesk and get some data and pull it back. But humans need to be in the loop. The question is, when does the human need to be in the loop? And do we think we're going to trust it a little further and a little further? I think the answer is yes. But it's up to us to know that we understand how it fails and, and guard against that. Just like if you hired somebody, one of the first things that you'd be on the lookout for is what are their strengths and weaknesses so you wouldn't get surprised by those weaknesses. AI, is, it is different, but it's a good, it's a good way of thinking. Yeah, I love that. that was, it's a great answer. I like the research assistant aspect of it. I was actually just talking to somebody like an hour ago about AI and the kind of the partnership that it has with, with people. And I said, it's, it's like a great brainstorm partner that you can bounce ideas off of each other and it kind of sparks some creativity, but for sure you need to go through and kind of check the, <laughs> check the work 100%. to make sure that it, it, it flows. Right. And it's, it's how you actually are, are thinking, but uh, so how can you use AI then as really that, data-driven decision-making tool to help make those informed decisions when it comes to you know, project management, resource allocation, risk assessment, you name it? I think that that's a great question because now you get back into what flavors of AI make the most sense. Resource allocation, for example, can be a really subtle question or it can be just math, right? And I think that AI is great at that kind of math, like deep learn- classic deep learning, what I was calling wave two is really good at that because it's going to find the optimal solution if you give it the right input. So I think that's one answer to your question. The other thing, though, is what these modern models are, are getting really good at, and they already are good at it. It's just, again, we're, we're working through kinks and making sure we, we know where to trust it, is looking at data that maybe isn't as structured and information that maybe isn't as structured and figuring out how to do things with it. 
So one of the, the interesting points about actually using a large language model is whether it's ChatGPT or DaVinci is more likely what you're going to use. When we think about deep learning, we think about the data that goes in and then it, it all goes through and it trains the model and the model's smart. Actually, what happens with LLMs is you're also training the input. So there's this process called embedding that happens before it even goes to uh, the large language model. That's how you can take huge numbers of documents and still get something smart out of them. So the point I'm making is as you get better and better at how to process the data and the, the LLMs help with that too, you can get to more subtle questions like resource allocation based on strengths and weaknesses, not just available time or, or kind of quantitative things, if that makes some sense. So that was a bit of a fuzzy answer to say, it'll depend a little on what you're trying to do. And there, we now have much more of a toolkit than we did before. And we're just learning how to use, how to use parts of that toolkit. Final point I'll make is the, dis the difference between the first really good deep, mo deep learning models out there, which were primarily about dog breeds of all things, or image recognition uh, at Stanford, but it doesn't matter, that, that could recognize different dog breeds. In fact, that's how they could tell which one was better than the other. Skip ahead seven years, let's call it, and you have Struction Site and you have Open Space and you have Avere and you have like, you know, eight or nine companies that are using a really, really evolved version of that to do things you never could have predicted. And what I'm saying is I think in a year, you're going to start hearing things that the large language models can do that are really hard for us to see right now because it takes an entrepreneur banging his head against the wall repeatedly and then having other people tell him, no, you're, that's really not the right thing, but maybe that over there. That's like the, the hard part of innovation is taking that really cool that really cool tech and really turning it into something that is purchasable and useful. And we're right there right now. Mm -hmm. You said something that was really interesting of the, the right input. How do you know what the right input is in, to put into your AI to get the, the correct and needed information that you're looking for? Yeah, this is one of the earliest things people were freaking out about with deep learning. And that's this idea of bias. Now you hear about it in a uh, social context a lot, but that's true for everything. If you want to make a model or make an AI tool that's really good at walls, whatever that means, recognizing quality, recognizing whatever, and you only ever show it gypsum board and you never show it wood, it's not going to know what to do with wood. You've created a bias in that, that that has nothing to do with people. It just has to do with what you've asked it to do, and it can only do some of it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so you think about that that in a more subtle way is if I'm training the, the training the system um, to be able to look at things, have I given it? Let me change that. The the problem now isn't the data we're putting it in, putting into it. That's that's always going to be an issue, and that's true in everything. Like if if you're not putting the right content in, you're not going to get the good the right output. The hard right. part now is is the right questions. Are you training the pre processing part? so that it knows how to even do something with your questions. And that's, we've never had to deal with that before. In, in all of computer science, we've never had to deal with a problem like this, where the questions we're asking are handled in a much more sophisticated way. Hey, innovators. Do you want to help inspire the next generation of architects, engineers, and builders? Applied Software Great Tech Group does too. In fact, they have launched a scholarship contest and need your help spreading the word. 
If you know any students or teachers who could benefit from the contest, tell them to visit asti.com slash AEC scholarship for more information. Applied Great Tech is giving away over $1,000 to help students pursue their dreams. And we need your help to make it happen. So what are you waiting for? Let's make a difference together. Uh, so what is the, the link really doing to help kind of revolutionize the way construction uh, specifications are, are being managed and utilized in projects? Thanks. For, yeah, thanks for asking about my, my favorite topic. So we started off as a classic SaaS company that used some old school, I call it old school, deep learning to just understand what was in the spec and so on. Now we actually look at it as the center of the project. And honestly, the large the reason we jumped on large language models as soon as we understood they were steerable, they were controllable, which was really what happened in November of last year, we realized that we now have the ability to um, give field teams wherever they are, and, and for that matter, an owner, the ability to know what's going on in, in the spec in a way that's just not true right now. And, and the, the analogy we like to use is specs are like old maps. You use them when you really have a problem, when you have a lot of time, or you've just got something big going on, but they're, they're kind of not so easy to read and flipping through however many thousands of pages, it's just a mess. Even though you've got master format and all the other ways of organizing, it's still a lot of work. What we want to be able to do is say, if, if you as, as a superintendent or a foreman are even a little curious, a little unsure about what the spec says, you should be able to check it like that. And that's what we're doing. We're taking specs and doing for them what Google Maps did for maps. Think about how often you use a map now. Like you go down the road to get milk and you're using a map, whereas in the past you would have been like, I think I know. I don't know. I'll ask the guy. And you never ask the guy, you get lost. So now you can, you know, at the slightest drop of a hat, if you're slightly not sure, you're going to use a map. The specs should be the same way. Specs and the, the documents that surround them should be such that if there's even a question, you just ask. If the answer is right there, you move on with your job. One of the things that everybody knows happens in construction is people have a lot of experience and they will do things from, through muscle memory. Like, yeah, I know how to pour concrete or I, I know how to put up drywall. Yeah, but you're in California and the rules might be a little different or you're in Louisiana and the humidity you know, constraints might be different, whatever it is. Specs, you know, some what we like to think it's 10 to 20 percent of the time, there's something in the spec that might be surprising. And maybe they remember it from the early part of the job when they really did read it end to end. But if it's six months in, it's a different person. Maybe they're maybe they haven't had a chance to. So how do you make it so that those claims, that rework, that risk is reduced so that, again, if there's even a question, you say, let's check. And the link is how you do that. Nice. I think that's huge. How do you go about helping uh, kind of retrain people's muscle memory so that they are using the, the new technology. One of the, the biggest hurdles is when you're implementing new technologies in, in any industries, nobody really likes change. And so they resist, or, or maybe they even change for a little bit and then they revert back once they hit that first speed bump. How do you guys go about kind of helping that, that change management? Just by making it super easy. We're not really asking for a lot of change. You're, you're basically saying, you know, if you're in doubt, go check and think about how quickly people took to, to using maps on their phones really, really fast. And what we one of the things that's true about the construction industry, it gets a lot of grief for being slow in some ways. But if there's value and it doesn't require a lot of learning, people do it really quick because they ultimately really want to do their jobs well. They really want to reduce risk and feel like, OK, I've got more of a command of this 
job than I might have if I weren't using this tool. And so all we're, all we're suggesting is ask the question, and which people do anyway. They're doing it when they want to book dinner. They're doing it when they want to buy, you know, their husband or wife something. I mean, like, these are not new, uh, these are not new behaviors. They're behaviors that people are doing everywhere else in their life. You're just saying, do it here. It's not quite the yeah. same as Google because it's a little more formal, like the way things need to be sent back, need to be a little more formal. You need to be able to click on it and see the spec under it. But, you know, like there's, again, we're not looking to create new risk. We're like looking to remove risk. But it's very similar to Google in terms of your mental habit. The specifics of it need to be a little bit more buttoned up than that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, where do you see AI evolving to? What's the kind of, what do you see as the envision for the next big wave? You talked about the, the three waves. What's the ne next big wave, especially in construction tech? I think this current wave, it's just starting. So I think, like I say, you're going to see our relationship to documents and information completely change, right? It's easy to do that with text because they're sort of built on that. But the thing about the underlying technologies, as you know, from Dolly and, and uh, some, uh, Stable Diffusion, it works for visuals as well. I don't quite know how that's going to translate into construction, but I promise you it will. So I think what's going to wind up happening is pretty soon everyone will have some level of an AI assistant who's just helping, who's augmenting, searching for things, finding, for, finding things, making sure they remember this. One of the interesting things is all of the large language models are capable of training you. Someone needs to tell them to do that. But now imagine you've got, you know, somebody joins the, the, uh, your, your crew and they're younger, they're kind of new. You can have the LLM tell them one thing a day, you know, maybe on the drive in or at some point over lunch, but you can suddenly start to have content that would be really hard to get someone to pay attention to because they're too busy and they're running around to drip feed. This is called, on, you know, on the job learning, but now a little bit more structured. Now everyone's going to have the ability to do that. I think that's going to transform some of the skill sets of people on job sites. Doesn't doesn't impact doesn't replace the fact that watching things and watching how people do things is the best way we learn. But there's a lot of other things you can learn that support that just through again being shown it, being told it, being whatever. So I think there's a number of ways that we might be surprised in three, four years what's being done. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. Yeah. Do you think this is easier than other tech to convince people to uh, adopt or harder? Or where do you think it, it kind of falls on that continuum? I think we have a little bit of a trust gap right now. This is very new. There's some things getting figured out. When the trust gap gets figured out, I think it'll depend a little on the product. Um, it, it's really ultimately the product that people adopt. So if it's well done and it's the person, the, the, you know, the team that built it, really paid attention to their, their users. Um, I think adoption will be faster because a lot of it just almost by its nature requires you to learn less. Think about like what it takes to learn Procore, super powerful platform, lots of buttons and pathways to remember, right? And they've done a great job of simplifying what is an enormously powerful platform. And Autodesk has done the same Trimble as well, but nevertheless, there's a lot to learn. The, this wave of AI is doing a lot of things where you're just asking it. I'll tell you what will take a little learning, and that is thinking of interacting with software as a conversation, not just to ask in response, right? Like being able mm -hmm. to ask, it gave you most of what you wanted, but I needed a little bit more. Like that's how you talk to a person. 
And that's what that's why they called it a chatbot because it it may or may not get you the perfect answer right away, but it is more than capable of remembering what it just told you, using that as the basis to do better next time. So I think that we're going to find ourselves talking to computers in a way that that we never have before. That might take a minute for people to get used to. I personally am still getting used to it, and I I kind of live here. Yeah, what do you think will help? get people more use of that and, and more comfortable in that dialogue. Seeing how good it is. I really think this is enough mm-hmm. better than what it's replacing that people are going to be like, Oh wow. Okay. That's great. Oh wow. I didn't. Okay. You know what I mean? Like knowing yeah. that I'm walking into this problem with more than I ever have in terms of just, I've just checked this stuff. I've just looked something up. I've just asked how my company did it last time. All that is are things that we're working on. And if we're doing it, course we're ahead of everybody but other people are doing it too i'm kidding i can't help myself um but you're going to find i think the other thing that's interesting is uh i think this was in january the cio of ernst and young looked at chat gpt and said this is going to change knowledge management more than anything else now he works at a consulting firm so that's where his head is but the idea of knowledge management in a construction environment whether it's at the trades or gcs or or you know upstream is really new. People have been trying it. It usually winds up being an Excel spreadsheet with stuff people did during one meeting and no one ever looks at it again. This is a way where you can really mine past information and provide it for people executing today in a summarized way. That's the other thing that's kind of fun is you can talk to these models and say, give me a two sentence answer. And it will, as opposed to just give me what you, give me what you got, which could be more than you can read. So I think that that the other thing that's really interesting is being able to get references from other people in your company that have executed something similar because people do that all the time now anyway. But you're making it much much more much easier, much more fluid. Yeah, and carrying on in that conversation mindset as well too of picking up with somebody else and kind of joining totally. in the conversation that would be interesting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so as someone really deeply involved in, in both technology and construction, what advice would you have for uh, an aspiring kind of entrepreneur or individual looking to make a, a real meaningful impact in the construction technology space? Um, the first one probably is to play with these tools. Um, go to deeplearning.ai and you can take free one hour um, courses on the various ways that large language models work. Ignore the fact that they tell you you need to do Python. You really don't. And it's quick. You can just listen to what they say and, and don't worry about the, the little um, homework that they do. That's really a good way to get comfortable with what this stuff is and kind of know the basics of the technology. Because, again, I think this is a wave that has got a long way to go before it, it peters out. And we don't know when the next innovation is going to happen. It turns out that the innovation that made this happen is from a paper in 2017. And it just took some years for it to turn into really useful product. Um, so it could have already been written for all we know. I don't think it is. I think we'd know. But nevertheless, at some point, another leap is going to happen. And this will form a really important lens for whatever comes next. It, it, they're not going to be totally different. It's going to be an evolution of this. Just like knowing deep learning helps you understand large language models, whatever comes next is almost definitely going to have enough of a relationship to these that knowing this stuff will help you then. That'd be a big one. And now again, I'm coming at this from an AI perspective. The other thing that I think is worth thinking about is how processes work. Because 
whether it's AI or, or some other version, the construction processes of which there are, you know, a bunch, they're all going to have to change a little because we, we just, we have a, a shortage of, of people and that's not going away. So whether it's at the top or in the middle or even in the smaller companies, people are going to have to figure out how to make do with fewer people, either by changing what they build or how they build it or how they manage the building of it. And AI will have a piece of that because as we understand, if we understand the process really well, we know what we can, we can shoot over to an AI and say, take care of that for me. And we'll, we'll keep a human eyeballing it. But what are the parts of this process I can maybe use an AI for? Cause the nice thing about an AI is you can, you can get five of them right? Or 10 of them, if you need it, like you can scale them really fast, whereas scaling people is not so easy. So if there are parts of this process that we could just scale and make it not the problem of the humans, you get more out of the humans, you're able to find and train them faster. How long do you see this wave lasting? You say, you know, we're right at the start of it. But do you think it's that the next kind of jump is a year, five years? Longer. Well, let's, What's yeah, your, that's a great, that's an it. excellent question. And and obviously predicting the future of anything is exactly how you get proven Risky. wrong. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. But I think the analogy you can use is if you take really 2013, when the world started really hearing about deep learning, three years later-ish, we had three years, maybe, maybe it was four years later, we started to see real products in construction, at least the beginning of them. They were really early at that point. Um, I may be off by a year mm -hmm. or two because I, I just haven't checked lately, but let's say it took four years from people really knowing about deep learning to building products that then took two, three years to turn into something that got investment and all that. I think that that mm -hmm. this time will be half that. I think it'll be in, within a year or two, you're going to start to see, and we're already you know eight months, almost a year into this kind of next wave. So I think in the coming year, you're going to start to see some things it takes time for investment to happen. It takes time for growth and scaling and all that stuff. So I think you're going to see this for another five years. And I, I, I have a feeling in the middle mm -hmm. of that five years or maybe next year, at some point soon, whatever the next thing is, trust me, people are working on it. And people are spending an enormous amount of money trying to figure out what the next thing is. One of the cool things about OpenAI and ChatGPT is more than anything else, it utterly validated AI as a business proposition. Like it, it, there's never been an app like that. All sorts of records were broken and people are just engaging with it. The problem is it's not really a product. Mm. So then they stop. So the engagement falls off because, yeah, I had some fun with it and I, you know, learned my family tree or whatever. Uh, then you kind of run out of it. Now it's time to turn it into products that people use all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. What do you see as the next step in the, the industrialization of construction? You know what I don't see enough of is, at least I don't see it. Again, people that do this all day long in terms of thinking about industrialization might, might be a little more sophisticated, but I don't think we think about building types as clearly as we might. I think we talk about things like industrialization, um, industrialized construction as one big thing. And it's so obviously better for some products, for some buildings than it is for others. And I think we're going to start to see more of a division of building type than maybe was true before. Because not only, not only industrialized construction, you could definitely argue that certain building types are better for design build than they might be for IPD or for, you know, seam at risk or you name it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think that as time goes on and we learn the implications of different things, whether it's um, contract type, whether it's 
how do the AHJs, how do the authorities having ju jurisdiction respond to different things? Like one of the first problems we had with industrialized construction is who inspects it, right? And what is it classified? Sometimes things are, are classified as a product when they're on the truck and they're classified as construction when they're on the job site. I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but the point is just the, the regulatory side of things is still evolving. Um, so I, I think we're going to get, we're going to find some building types and uses are really good for this. Um, and I also think that the business model side of it is, is getting worked out. There's a couple of companies with some really innovative ways of thinking about how do I do industrialized construction without dumping a bunch of money on a factory that I now have to go get orders for? That's just really hard. You know what I mean? For a company, for a construction company mm -hmm. to build a factory and the some are doing it, it's just hard because then you got to find, you got to find enough demand to justify that. And banks don't love that. Yeah. Oh, so one of our main kind of backbones of the podcast here is uh, around innovation and construction. So with that, what does innovation mean to you? That's an excellent question. Um, innovation to me means taking an idea and tweaking it a thousand times in response to, to what people need. I think innovation is way more of a process than it is a thing. Um, and it has as much to do with listening, trying, and failing over and over again, but you don't call it a failure. You just call it an adjustment, right? Like that didn't quite work. Okay, let's try it again. Let's try it again. It's, you know, the, the number of, what was it? Thomas Edison made a thousand light bulbs before one that worked. And he said, I just found a thousand ways they don't work. Mm -hmm. That's a nice way of thinking right. about what innovation really is, is you're trying things in a thoughtful, controlled way, usually with a hypothesis, not just throwing, you know, spaghetti at the wall. Um, but but just knowing that you're not going to get it right, you're going to keep tweaking and iterating until it, it it hits. Yeah, I agree about the the process of learning. Uh, it's exactly what innovation is: is those one percent kind of incremental improvements yeah. over a long period of time. That that's what makes a big uh, impact. And what gives you those jumps when you look back is those one percent things that you they they add up. Uh, yeah, that, that's huge. Uh, how do people find out more information and connect with you? Yeah, you always check me out on LinkedIn. I got a big mouth, so I'm, I'm posting stuff pretty pretty consistently. Um, our website is thelink.ai, uh, just all straight out. So you'll you'll can see some new stuff coming up pretty soon, actually. So we're pretty excited. And uh, and you know my email is hugh.seaton at thelink.ai. I respond to everything. Awesome. Well, final question for you, Hugh. If I could give you all construction power. And you could snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the industry. What would you pick to innovate? I would innovate. I'm not sure this is the right level, but I would innovate housing. I'd figure out how to make housing uh, faster and more affordably. That might mean that I would innovate regulations before I would innovate um, construction itself. But if there are a thing that I think the, the U.S. Yeah. needs right now, it's probably figuring out housing. And I think that's unfortunately a multifaceted problem, but that would be where I'd focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a definitely a lot of complexities and angles into that. But awesome, uh, it, it, an area that's badly in need of some some innovation there for sure. Well, Hugh, thanks so much for taking the time and joining the show today. Todd, always a pleasure. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, AI is a great way to augment to improve your process. As Hugh mentioned, it is a great research assistant. Don't be afraid to harness that power and potential. 
Second take. I like that Hugh mentioned using AI is all about being conversational. Treating AI like you are in an active conversation will change the way you interact and what you are inputting. It will also just make for better results. And finally, innovation is a continual process of learning. As I talk about a lot, it is about adding consistent 1% improvements over time. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software Great Tech Group at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining the conversation to model the future on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant, edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an Applied Software Great Tech Group production. Copyright Applied Software Great Tech Group 2023.